Fill in this blank this morning with me if you could. A picture paints a thousand words. Wow. This morning, as we look at our text today in Acts 7, um, Stephen paints a portrait of God, a, a picture of God with literally uh, about 1,200 words. So just over a thousand words. Stephen is going to paint a picture of, of who God is. And as we look at these words this morning, um, Stephen, it's interesting, he, he gives us kind of the, the Reader's Digest version of, of the history of Israel in Acts chapter 7. I'm going to try to give us kind of the cliff note version um, and kind of even go shorter upon what Stephen does, this condensed version of the history of God. But what I want us to see today is, is that you and I were created by God to reflect his image, uh, we, we are those who bear the image of God, the, the, the glory of God. And yes, sin has come in and stained that. Sin has come in and disrupted that. But through knowing Jesus on the cross, we can be redeemed and restored into new creations that are to shine like shooting stars, to shine like, like stars in the universe among a crooked and depraved generation. That's what God has called us to do, to truly paint a picture of who God is. And this morning, there's many different canvases in here. There's many different backdrops. There's backdrops of hurt. There's backdrops of pain. There's backdrops of diseases. There's backdrops of, of different stories and, and history. There's backdrops with different roles and different functions that you have. But at the end of the day, God has created everybody in here to be a portrait of who he is. That's his heart and his desire for his church. And today what I want to do is to show you how Stephen is literally a portrait of God. He's a portrait of God in both word but also in deed. And so what I want to do this morning is to, get, to give you a snapshot of what uh, the history of Israel looks like. But, but, but before I do, I want to show you the purpose of that. I want to show you the reason of that and, and what Stephen uh, is doing. And so um, to do that, let me kind of help you where we've been. We've been journeying through the book of Acts uh, since the beginning of the year. And um, the context where we find ourselves now is with the church of Jerusalem. And so if you look at uh, chapter 6 and at ch chapter 7... The church has been growing by thousands. Uh, we've seen Luke uh, insert little verses here and there and just say, hey, the disciples are increasing. And so the church is growing. Um, the church in Jerusalem, and one of its church members happens to be Stephen. And we found out about him last week, that he has a big heart for people. And he's caring and serving in the church specifically for widows. But he also was a bold witness for Jesus Christ in his everyday living. He was full of grace. He was marked by the power of God as he was filled with the Spirit, as he walked by the Spirit. Literally the all of Christ just was displaying in and through this man because of God's grace. But Stephen one day as he was speaking of Jesus met some resistance to what he was saying, and his hearers were Jews and also leaders and elders uh, in Judaism and the religion that day, and they dragged him before the Sanhedrin. They dragged him before the high priest. And the reason they did was because of this. They said that he was speaking in chapter 6, verse 11, blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And so as a result, Stephen is taken before this council. And they said that he has spoken against the holy place, literally the temple, 
which Jews revered as the dwelling place of God. That's where you went to meet God, the Jews would say. And not only that, they said that Stephen was speaking against the law. These are the two things in Judaism you don't speak about. You don't speak against. And so they said, we have heard him say in chapter 6, verse 13 through 14, that Jesus will destroy the temple and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. We looked at this a little bit last week, and so what was Stephen referring to? He was referring to the words of Jesus Christ. In fact, in John chapter 2, verse 19, if you remember, Jesus said this. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What was Jesus talking about? He was talking about his body. That he would die, and then on the third day he would raise to life. But what was Stephen meaning? That Jesus would destroy the temple, and that he would alter the customs of Moses. Well, Stephen was meaning the same thing Jesus was, and Jesus was meaning the same thing Stephen was. Because Jesus' death and his resurrection marked a huge change. It was no longer supposed to be about a place, about a temple. It never was supposed to be about that. But now, the dwelling of God, the glorious radiance of God is Jesus Christ. You see, the day Jesus dies, the day he raises again, the temple dies. Jesus died for sin once and for all. He's the everlasting priest, the Lord of glory. And he's the sacrifice for sins once and for all. He's the priest. He's the go-between between us and the Father. And so it is at these words and the meaning of them that the high priest in chapter 7, where we're going to begin today, in verse 1, he asked this question. Are these things so? Everything that we just talked about, are these things so? Are these things so? That Jesus, his death and his resurrection, marks the the, the end to the temple, to the system that the, the Jews have. It marked the end enough. Because all that was pointing to Jesus. He's the fulfillment of it all. And the Jews didn't like that. It enraged them with anger. And so they put Stephen on the defense. And so here Stephen makes a defense of his statement about Jesus and the effect of Jesus' death and his resurrection on the system of religion for the Jews. And he does it with this condensed version of the history of Israel in Acts chapter 7. Before we kind of highlight some things, we're not going to read it all, it's a lot of stuff, but before we highlight some stuff, what I would like to do is to show you what Trudy just read in in verse 51. This is the conclusion. This is the conclusion of Stephen's defense, and here's the conclusion of it. He says this in verse 51 of chapter 7. He says, you men are stiff-necked. What does that mean? If someone's stiff-necked, they're like this, they're they're prideful, right? They're, They're arrogant. He also says you're uncircumcised in heart, meaning you're unchanged. You you need a new heart. You need to be a new creation. And yet they're unchanged. You have ears that are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You don't want to listen to God. In fact, you're obstinate to God. And then he says in verse 51, you are doing just as your fathers did. How many of you like to hear that? You're just like your mom. You're just like your dad. (laughs) And he says here, you are just like your fathers of old, like, like the Jews before you. That's his point. You're just like the Israelites before you, those who went before you. 
These are some very convicting words. And then look at verse 52. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. So what he's saying is um, the Israelites of old betrayed, uh, went against uh, the prophets of old, and we're going to see that in just a second, God's representatives of old, just like you did against Jesus. Just as you denounced and even put him on a cross. Stephen says, so did those in the history of Israel. You are just like them. Very condemning words. And then look at verse 53. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. This is going to make them mad. We're going to see that in just a second. But what's the point? The point is this, Stephen is not being blasphemous. Stephen is not speaking against God. He's not speaking against Moses. He's not speaking against the law. He is speaking the truth. And the point that Stephen is going to make is history proves that. That yet he is true and it shows that many in Israel for centuries were wrong. And so are the ones standing before Stephen on this day. They're prideful and they actually resist God. We live in a day where a good deal of our culture is obstinate to God. They're closed off to listening to the things of God. Some might take a little bit of God. They might even say, yeah, I believe in a God. But when you talk about Jesus being the substitute for sins, when you talk about Jesus laying his life down, and that their sins can be forgiven by Jesus, to many that becomes a punchline. To many, that becomes an opportunity of mockery. To them, it's foolish in our world. Yet, I have also found recently, to many today, in a, our younger generation, especially in the, in the millennial age, there are many that will also, though, sit down and bend an ear and listen as well. And they'll listen to you tell the story of Jesus. And so, yes, there are many that are obstinate, we see it in the mainstream culture, to God and especially to Jesus Christ. But there are people that are still willing to sit down and at least listen. Some of you know that. Some of you are investing in people right now, building relationships and talking to them about Jesus, and you're praying for those people. But the question is this morning, what does this world need? What did the religious leaders need? And they need a portrait of God. They need a picture of who God is. And that's what Stephen does today. And I, I want to give us just four points this morning. First point's going to be a little longer than the others, but I want to give us four points just real simply this morning. And this is what Stephen does in his life through word and also in deed. He gives us a picture of God. And the first picture he gives us is the, the mercy and the patience of God. He gives us a, a portrait of the mercy and the patience of God. And how does he do that? Well, he does it in a lot of words in Acts chapter 7. I was talking to somebody earlier, and they said, do you think he even maybe spoke more than this? Do you think maybe Luke even gives us a little shorter version? Very well likely. But the whole point is he gives us a condensed version of the history of God to point to the mercy and the patience of God, and here's how he does it. Look at verse uh, 
2 of chapter 7. He begins with Abraham. I'm going to read you this because I, I want you to, to kind of get into the, the mode of what Stephen's doing here because um, it's some good stuff. And listen to what he says. Chapter 7, verse 2. He said, in defense to the question of the high priest who says, are these things so? Here's how he answers. Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. And we get this from Genesis 11 and also Genesis chapter 12. And then it says in verse 4, Then he left the land of Chaldeans. He settled in Haran. From there after his father died, God had him moved to this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. Yet even when he had no child, he promised that he would give to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect. That his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved, mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, God says. And after that, they will come out and they will serve me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And so what is Stephen doing here? He begins to show the Israelites that he's before, these religious leaders, that God was gracious in birthing, in creating the nation of Israel. That he went out by grace, chose Abraham. Now there's some interesting points that he makes here, and I'll just kind of highlight them. The first thing he says is, listen, he wasn't in Palestine. He wasn't uh, religious leaders in the land that we're in now. No, Abraham was in a different land, and God went to him and called him out of that land. What I love about the language here in chapter 7 is several times it will say, the God of glory appeared to Abraham. And so God's doing the activity. In another place it says that he promised Abraham. In chapter 4, it says God had him move. And so who's doing the action here? It is God. He is sovereign. And not only that, in verse 8, it says he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So we see the grace of God in the life of Abraham. And what he's going to do is he's going to birth out of Abraham who? A people, the Israelites. Those God calls out to be these people that are to be witnesses of him to give the world a portrait and a picture of who he is. But one thing I, I love about what Stephen's doing here is he says, listen, it, it's not about the land. Because the Israelites, a lot of times, they, they make it about the land, right? You read this and you think, well, it, it's about the land. No, it's about the promise of God. Yes, was land included? Yeah. But that is not the end of it. You see, God is not to be boxed in. And, and that's what the Israelites did. That's what the Jews often did. They tried to box them in. They tried to box them in buildings. They, they tried to box them in. They tried to box them in the temple. They tried to box them in within the law. And, and that's not what God was doing. That's not the purpose of it. God isn't boxed into some geographical area. God isn't boxed into some building on one day for an hour and 15 minutes. God is not to be boxed in. 
And so Stephen's point here is God went to Abraham. He called him in a land that is far from the land that the leaders are in. He's called them, yes, eventually to that land. He's promised it to his descendants. But the point is this, because he says, guess what? They're going to be enslaved for 400 years. They're going to be um, under slavery to Egypt and eventually to other nations. But God says, I'm going to deliver them. I'm going to rescue them. And they're going to serve me. And they're going to worship me. So what's the point? I think the point is simply this. God is promising to be their God. And God is promising, if you want to deliver and a rescue, I'm that deliverer. I'm that rescuer. And I want you to worship me because he is God of heaven. And that's what he's saying. And that's how he birthed this nation. That's what he birthed them for, to be their God and that he, they would be his people and that they would serve and worship him. And there's a lot of more stuff going on there. But that, I think, as you step away, is the big picture. And Stephen wants them to get that. But yet they miss it. And they continue to miss it. Look at verse 9. Who does he go to next? He goes with Joseph. Joseph and the patriarchs. And I want to read this section to you too as well. When we get to Moses, we're not going to read the whole thing. But I want you to read and hear what he says about Joseph. Because what we see here is a beautiful picture of the mercy of God, that the patience of God with us. <laughs> and look what he says in verse 9. He says, the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph. They sold him into Egypt. You remember why they became jealous with him? The brothers of Joseph? Because he was saying, I'm speaking the God, words of God, and, and you're to do what? You're to bow down to me. That's going to happen. You're going to bow down to me. He told his brothers that. He was implying that he was going to be superior to them. And his brothers didn't like it. They became jealous. They sold him into Egypt, yet God was with Joseph. Verse 10, and rescued Joseph from all his afflictions, granted him favor, wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. And then look at verse 11. A famine came over Egypt and Canaan, great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then and Joseph sent word, invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers died. And so here he goes on through the history, and he gets to Joseph. And he says, Joseph's brothers, they were jealous. They sold him into slavery into Egypt. But yet God was merciful. He, he was with Joseph. He was with Joseph, but not only that, what do we see right here? He was merciful and patient, even with Joseph's brothers as well. And how do we see that? The famine came. The famine came to the land. His brothers were without food. And what does God do? This is, this is the great mystery of God. God uses the very sin of Joseph's brothers to bring rescue Back to them. The very sin of these brothers put Joseph in the position in Egypt, and God raised him up to be um, this leader that would eventually care for his brothers who sold him into slavery. And so what's the point? Stephen's making this point that, that Joseph uh, is similar in character to who? To, to Jesus. And 
his own brothers rejected him, and he's saying to the religious leaders, you've rejected Jesus. And just like God was merciful to Joseph's brothers, he continues to be patient. He continues to be merciful. And that's a portrait that God wanted to paint. In fact, it's what he showed Moses. In fact, in Exodus chapter 34, I want you to hear this verse this morning. In verse 6 through 7, listen to God, how he reveals himself to Moses. He says to Moses, the Lord, the Lord God is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. He keeps loving kindness for thousands who forgives iniquities. He forgives transgression and forgives sin. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And so what Stephen is doing here this morning, he is painting a picture of God, that God is eager to forgive. He's eager to show mercy. He's eager to show patience toward those who repent, toward those who are humble and not stiff-necked. He's not eager to show, pay, uh, he's not eager to show punishment, but his patience will run out. I think Stephen shows that today. In fact, he continues to show it. He, he does with Moses. He's taken kind of the highlights of some of the characters of the Old Testament. He's gone from Abraham to Joseph to Moses. And I want to read to you just a few verses here to show what he says about Moses and how it speaks to the mercy and the grace of God. And listen to what he says in verse 17. But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, meaning the time that God would lead his people eventually into their land that he had promised Abraham he would show to them. It says in verse 17, the people increased, they multiplied in Egypt. Remember, they're enslaved. And then look at verse 18, until there arose another king over Egypt who, nothing, who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage. So you remember, um, they're, the Israelites, they're taken care of by Joseph because of the famine. They're taken in, but then another Pharaoh raises up. And eventually what's going to happen to the Israelites, remember, they are increasing in number and the Pharaoh doesn't like it. The new king doesn't like it. And so look what he does. It says next, he took advantage of them in verse 19 of our race, Stephen says. He mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. And so Israel goes through this. This is before the Exodus and then this is the context which God is going to raise up who? Moses. He's going to raise up Moses. He's going to raise up a representative, a, a prophet who is to speak on God's behalf to a nation. To reveal who God is. To show who God is. Now Moses isn't the most perfect guy. Moses is going to kill a guy. About around 80 years old or so, Moses is going to come and before a burning bush, God is going to reveal who he is, that he is I am. And God commissions Moses to go to Pharaoh to say, hey, let my people go. But it's interesting, even through Moses, his own people, the Israelites, there are times they would follow him, but there were many times they were unwilling. In fact, look at verse 35. 
as God was using Moses to, to rescue them. And yes, they will be led out of Egypt across the Red Sea, but listen to how they continue to treat Moses. In verse 35, this Moses whom they disowned, saying, who made you a ruler and judge, is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. So they continued with Moses to disown him. They wouldn't have anything to do with him. They were tired of it. And they were ultimately tired of God. And then in verse 36, this man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, in the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. But yet they continued to be unwilling to follow him and to listen to him. And then God will call forth Moses, as we see in the rest, as he begins in verse 37, he will call Moses up to deliver the law at Mount Sinai. But yet even the law, they were unwilling, according to verse 39, to be obedient to. And they repudiated him, and in their hearts they turned back to where? To Egypt. So God delivers them and rescues them from Egypt, and then they turn their hearts back to slavery. How often do we do that? to the things that God rescues us from, and then we turn our hearts back to those very things. And that's what the Israelites did. They did not rejoice in the mercy and the grace of God. And that's what God's called us to do. He's called us to rejoice in his mercy, to rejoice in his patience. But what does Israel do? They turn to idolatry. They turned to the worship of other gods. They put other things before the one true God. And that's what Stephen refers to next. We won't read it this morning, but that's what he does. They put together this golden calf. And it was their attempt to do what? It was their attempt to be fulfilled. It was their attempt to be satisfied with the works of their hands, what they could produce instead of being dependent on God and trusting in God. Him. And so they rejoiced, Stephen said, in the works of their hands. And so what is God's response? God is merciful, God is patient, but his patience will run out. And what does he do? It says in the text that God hands them over in verse 42 to their wishes. And that's what he does in Romans 1 as well. He gives them over to their sin. That's not a good sign. In fact, that is the wrath of God that is revealed to heaven here on earth is the giving over of people to their own sin. And that's what happened to Israel. They got wrapped up in being satisfied and fulfilled in their own works and what they could do and to what they can build. So much so, when God told Moses, I want you to build this tabernacle, and it's going to be a picture of my presence with you. God wasn't saying I'm contained only to this tabernacle. But what he was saying is I want you to know that it's a picture of my dwelling with you. My presence is with you. Wherever you go, my presence is with you. But yet we find in verse 78, Stephen saying to the Israelites, the most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. Because what did the Israelites do? What did the Jews do? They made the temple into something it was not supposed to be. They believed that the temple contained 
God. They put God in a box. And the root of evil in Israel, the root of evil in the hearts of these leaders and so many is that they derive their joy, they derive their fulfillment, their meaning, their significance from what they could achieve with their own hands. They wanted a God where they could demonstrate their own power, their own wisdom, their own righteousness, their own morality, their own religious seal. And they got their joy from whatever they could achieve instead of getting it from God. Worship became self-worship. They had unchanged hearts. They were stiff-necked. They were non-submissive to God's will. They were self-exalting. And so Stephen says the history of Israel shows the same of Stephen's day. The people were obstinate to God. They were unwilling to submit to him. They resisted him. Just as these, re- these religious leaders resisted Jesus, the righteous one, as they betrayed him and murdered him. Yet in the midst of it all, what's revealed? The mercy of God. The mercy and the patience of God. But yet Israel resisted. And so these two last final things I'm going to tell you today is, is this. First of all, when you look at Stephen, what do you see? You, you see a man that, that showed the mercy of God in word, but also in deed. Because what's going to happen next is in verse 54. I'm not going to read it all to you. I'm going to let you do that maybe at a later time. These guys get mad at what he just said. Oh, they can't stand it. They say, you're just like your fathers. You were given the law, yet you didn't do it. And they can't stand it. They're filled with anger. They're filled with rage. They go after Stephen. They chase him out. And they're going to stone him to death. And he's going to be the first Christian martyr. But I want you to see what happens. Look at verse 60. Look what happens. Stephen, as he's being stoned, listen to what he says. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Wow. Wow. Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And here Stephen has given a great picture, a beautiful picture of the mercy, the patience, the forgiveness of God. And then he models it in his own life, even in his death. And so what's the point? What's the point? I think at the end of the day, we look at Stephen and say, listen, here's a man who is a portrait of God. When people saw Stephen, what did they see? They saw God. They say God. And what did they see? They saw the forgiveness of God. And so watch this for a second.
Stephen, no doubt, was unique. He wasn't ordinary. Moms, you're unique. Your role is not ordinary. God's given you a special role. A role that I don't have. (laughs) A role your husband doesn't have. A role that the father of your children doesn't have. You uniquely get to show the kindness and the love of God. God has called us all to do that. Yes, through fatherhood and through the many different unique opportunities and roles he's given us in this world. But today, moms, I want you to hear that God has created you for a great purpose. And that's for you to show the world the mercy and the love of God, just like Stephen did, without fear, without fear. Moms, I want to encourage you today, be that bold witness. Let it begin in your home. Gather up your chicks, right? That's what the verse said. <laughs> love that. Gather them. Love them. And keep your heart at home. So often today, our hearts wonder, right? Our hearts wonder. I mean, for all of us, but our hearts can wonder because of the demands so often to go and to make more and to make sure we're provided for more. But moms, let me just encourage you. Gather your chicks at home. Gather them at home. Put your arms around them. Love them. Cherish them. Show the beauty, the love, the mercy, and the kindness of God. Let them know Jesus. Let them see your forgiving heart, just like today we have seen Stephen's forgiving heart in the midst of hateful, murdering men. Oh, moms, let the world see that kind of heart in you. And may it be so with all of us today that the world would see a merciful, loving, forgiving heart from us all so that they see God. Let's pray.